Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the Teacher Standard, where Vinaya and I uh, talk about our experiences as teachers. If you haven't listened to our first podcast, where we talk about who we are, our background within education, and why we got into teaching, now might be a good time to go back and you know learn a bit about who we are before we start talking about this topic. Today, we're going to be talking about behavior in schools. Uh, behavior issues, behavior solutions, and we're going to touch upon the current government plans to try and address behavior problems in the country. All right, so I understand you've done a bit of research into some of the background or some of the causes of bad behavior, Vinaya. Is that right? Yeah, I have. And I thought before we actually dive into that, why don't we just kind of share a little bit about our experiences with behavior? Because I know you and I definitely went through a lot of challenging times when we started off our teaching career. Um, even more so probably when we came back after lockdown from COVID. Um, so Jake, can you kind of pick out your experiences with behaviour in your school? Mm. Well, my school has quite uh, severe issues to do with behaviour, even within relatively uh, high attaining uh, classes. So set two can often be a bit of a challenge for new teachers. So last year was a very difficult time uh having got on a range of ability classes but oftentimes it was the it felt like it was an overriding culture within the year group that was really proving to be a barrier to being able to get pupils to be quiet and comply enough with the lesson to be able to actually do some good quality learning over that time through sort of you know being forged in the flames of bad behavior you necessarily develop some quite strong behavior management techniques that are personal to you. So this year, post uh, lockdown, over the summer, did loads of reading of behavior management advice. And this year has been considerably better. And uh, obviously, there's so much more work to be done. But the trajectory is up, which is so good to feel. How about you? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I still remember my first week into teaching. And it seems to be a, a theme in the school um, and this kind of culture that you will automatically disregard and disrespect a new member of staff. So being a new teacher, it was like, we're going to give you hell up until Christmas to kind of test your ability, how much, you know, we can push you to your limits. Um, and once you've got over that, you know, three month hurdle with all year groups I would say except year sevens they're kind of scared when they come into secondary school but um, from then onwards about year eight onwards um they do kind of wind back they do take you a bit more seriously and like you said it's all these strategies that we had to kind of learn on the job read around as well and implement into our lessons and definitely second year has been a lot easier I think you just have a reputation at that point students know how far to push you they've kind of seen you probably at a lot of your limits um and then there's this word of mouth that goes around as well um but you are an established teacher at that point so there is that form of respect but I just remember when I first started teaching it's so different to kind of the schools we grew up in where if there is a member of staff someone with authority and seniority you automatically would give them respect regardless of whether you know them or not um whereas I know in our schools it's it's quite different to that but uh kids kids end up being better and I know the experienced teachers tend to have an easier time so that's been quite good there's also the aspect, right, where um, I don't know if your school is the same, but in my school, there's quite a large staff turnover. So there's an aspect of the pupils 
not having invested into the relationship with the teacher in the first instance, because for all they know, you might be gone in halfway through the year or even less. So once you sort of stayed longer than the average teacher within the school, they do tend to respect you more because they feel more secure in investing in that relationship with you. I 100% agree. I 100% agree. And I think from the stuff that I'm going to talk about later, all this ideology or this idea of testing the teacher, building that relationship and almost gaining that trust and taking such a long time will really stem from the stuff that I've found that kind of goes around behavior. So going to dive straight into it. Found some quite interesting reports by the government online. So according to Ofsted, um, in around December 2011, they stated that 92.3% of all schools in England were judged as good or outstanding for standards of behaviour. Um, so putting that perspective, that's actually pretty good, getting into the 90s there. Um, maybe as first or trainee teachers, you might not see that as being realistic, depending on the school that you're in. But we can't forget that maybe, the let's say, 5% of a class are causing you hell compared to the other 95%, which are making up the rest of this data. Um, so, I mean, that's just something on there. Any thoughts to share, Jake, about that stat? That's actually a little bit surprising, I suppose. Maybe the fact is that uh, we have had relatively limited experience of all of the schools within the country. Maybe behaviour isn't as much of an issue based off of that data. <laughs> so what we're going to be talking really about is the schools that we have experienced and our friends have experienced, um, for sure. Um, so... I mean, there's a whole load of reasons why behavior can be quite challenging. Um, most of the time, there is just general low-level disruption, which a lot of teachers experience, um, where it's literally just chatter. It's not nothing big. So interestingly, according to Ofsted 2005, there are several characteristics of pupils that show challenging behavior. And I think when I list some of this stuff, Jake, you'd probably agree based on the classes that we do teach. So um, one of the categories is those with special educational needs um, those that join schools at different times other than the admission points that's you know joining halfway through a term etc and then you've also got pupils being looked after by a local authority and pupils with poor language and social skills of which I can literally say yes 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 I have literally seen all these circumstances and pupils that fit these kind of descriptions which is sad when you look at it from perspective that they've grown up in a certain way and they face these barriers externally and within themselves that we see that in the classroom as teachers yeah so I would say that I've picked up on those uh typical trends largely those behavior issues probably come up from frustration inability to access the uh, material or you know some teachers maybe don't uh provide as well as possible uh, or some uh, lessons don't provide as well as possible for these pupils. And so they act up because they're getting frustrated. Yeah, for sure. And I can already think of some students where when you look at the detentions list, they've got so many detentions, probably from a couple of subjects, and they don't get any detentions from you because they're really great in your lessons. So I asked this one girl who was in top set science, why is it that, you know, you keep getting detentions in English and maths? And she goes, well, she's in bottom set over there because she's missed, she's missed loads of exam papers and they couldn't really grade her but also the fact that the culture in those classrooms in the slightly lower attaining sets is much more disruptive so she gets disrupted as well and falls into that crowd whereas when she's 
in a crowd where students are more striving and actually achieve, wanting to do better, it drives her. So I thought that was really interesting because it really just, just depends on student circumstances. Um, so other groups with high levels of self-reported misbehavior and poorer social behavioral outcomes. So these are kind of measured by hyperactivity, antisocial behavior, pro-social behavior, and self-regulation. I think that's a big one. Uh, includes boys. Boys tend to be a lot more, let's say, disruptive or boisterous, um, full of energy um, in classroom settings. So I teach in a mixed school, so I, I can see that. Um, you've also got those from disadvantaged families, uh, all with multiple risk factors. Again, my school has a lot of um, students that come from those disadvantaged backgrounds. So when you hear their stories and you, you actually take an interest into what their lives are like, it puts their entire behavior into perspective, um, as well as those that come from disadvantaged neighborhoods. I think that's a big thing as well. When you say disadvantaged, um, is that people premium or is that a broader category than just people premium? It hasn't explicitly said. I mean, when we think of disadvantage, I think pupil premium would count. But I think also those that can't, let's say, afford any luxuries or struggle to kind of afford the basics um, that other students can across the country comparatively. And I suppose also carers might also come into that group. For sure. Yeah. Young carers okay. as well. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I thought, you know, that's quite interesting. There's definitely a lot of students that I teach that stand out for me for that. Um, what about you, Jake? Uh, yeah, I think that within most of my classes, within the all, all, the entire range, those barriers come up quite regularly. So I have a lot of pupils in my classes who behave quite well in mine, but they get a lot of sanctions. And oftentimes it's because they, when I talk to the people, they feel like they are just confused, not helped, and therefore act out because, you know, they're either bored, frustrated, or just don't see the point in it. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of the times the students that truant the most that don't really care about detentions at all. I mean, no matter what sanction you give them, they just don't care about the behavior system. But those that are seeking that kind of attention and you realize that some of them struggle with self-regulating, which is quite a big thing. I never really heard of that concept until you know you get into teaching and you teach some of these kids where their already stress level is so high and their anxiety level is so high when they come into school that any little thing can just trigger it. So they just end up rebelling against the rules they themselves maybe at home don't have rules that they can keep to. So when they come into school, there are boundaries set of which they don't agree with because it's not part of their own home, home culture. That's not what they're brought up with. So you get a lot of pushback from that. Um, but I know that there are definitely some students I can think of that maybe come from single households, therefore lose either a mother figure or a father figure, depending on their development and lose certain aspects and skills that they can gain from having that second parent. And it might not just be a single household. I mean, a lot of kids maybe have contact with their other parent if they live outside the house, but a lot of them don't. I think that's a big thing, that those families that are maybe separated, as long as there is a good relationship between both parties and the child, there tends to be less an effect than if there is a massive issue between the parents, as well as loss of communication between one parent and the child. 
that's been quite a big thing that I definitely has stuck out. When I think of some kids as well, where I've spoken to either one parent, I've spoken and seen their story, there is like a huge correlation between those two aspects of livelihoods. And that's why we need to always remember that communication with parents is really fundamental when it comes to uh, dealing with behavior issues. And I think it's an aspect that is quite easy to forget because you're in your own head, you're in the classroom, you're only really thinking about what's in school. You forget that there's a world outside of school for the kids as well, that their entire existence isn't just inside your classroom. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I felt like other than just being a science teacher, I've been a very pastoral role in school. I don't know about you, but I felt a lot like that this past year. I feel like um, pastoral is an area that I need to develop. I'm quite good within my own classroom environment, and I need to start trying to extend my thoughts to you know, the people at home, the people in other classrooms, the pupils in my own tutor group, for example. I think that I do some, I could do more. Always room to improve. Same with my set. So actually looking into that, I mean, I thought it was quite interesting about the households um, and parent families. I think that's a big one for a lot of schools in a lot of cases. So there was a study um, done in Portugal where they recruited a sample of 62 children. So 30 with single parents and 32 children with married parents between the ages of six to nine. So you're looking at early childhood development, which seems to be a really crucial time that kind of depicts behavior later on in secondary school. Um, So they evaluated the parents' perceptions about their children's behavior. And according to the results obtained, teachers indicate single parent children um, are having more behavior problems in two different dimensions than children with married parents Uh, single parents children without siblings are pointed out as having more behavioral problems than ones who do not so by their parents and the more spaced the visits of their father are in single parent children more behavioral problems they have according to the mothers so it's more looking at the loss of a father figure seems to have a massive impact um, on behavior according to this but obviously i mean it's based on portugal but we don't really have a UK study explicit here, but I can definitely see how some of this applies to the situations that we have here in this country. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Uh, parent dynamics is a fairly universal uh, thing, depend- no matter what country that you're looking in. The family unit is just as significant here as it is in America, as it is in mainland Europe and Asia. Right. So having uh, lost one of those role models, parental figures can be quite a... Uh, severe event in a child's life yeah that makes sense to me and I think that some of the worst behaving kids that I've had in my class has been following a divorce or a splitting up of parents or you know the alienation of a parent definitely I've seen a lot of kids come back and it's like they've done a 180 on their behavior and you just know something's wrong you just know and it tends to it tends to stem from home. Um, there are a few kids, actually, which when I first started teaching them in my first year, they they didn't explicitly get diagnosed with ADHD, but it was like all the symptoms that we get told of that um, condition fit those personalities. However, behavior specialists that work with them said, no, that's a misdiagnosis. It's not ADHD. It's actually self-regulation, 
which can be confused with for students that have ADHD. So the idea of self-regulation, which tends to happen in a lot of kids who um, end up getting expelled or end up developing a lot of mental health um, disorders that prevent them from having those positive social uh, interactions, uh, is due to them having quite traumatic experiences as a child in their early childhood time. So you're looking at the ages of, let's say, nursery through till the whole of primary. And their ability to then understand their emotions, to explain their emotions and to regulate them is extremely difficult, which is why they tend to be the students that cause the most problem in a classroom, because you can tell them off once for one small little thing and it's like lighting a firework. So it's quite interesting when you hear some of these stories and it really does open your eyes to such a, a larger issue that goes on behind closed doors. I think everyone has had an experience in their classroom of one child that you've maybe said not even anything necessarily that severe could just be stop talking whilst I'm talking, please. And then they absolutely look uh, thinking of a better phrase, but all I can think of is go off on one and they storm out the door. And when you talk to them later, they don't even really understand where that came from. Right, when you have that little restorative talk afterwards. I guess the last thing just to share, I mean, what are the consequences for us as teachers? A lot of teachers, let's say about 25% of teachers um, in 23 countries reported losing at least 30% of their lesson time due to disruptions, which in the wider scheme of things is a lot. It's a lot of time. And as myself and Jake are science teachers, we know that we are a core subject, essentially teaching three subjects in the space of one subject timetable. And losing 30%, up to 30% of every lesson, you know, accumulates a, a massive loss of time in stretching the curriculum. So definitely agree with that kind of statistic there. That's very severe, but I can definitely see that happening, particularly for um, new teachers that I'm seeing that started this year, where I'm talking to them and they're saying my kids don't really know anything because in the lesson I lose so much time to try and to wrangle in behavior so yeah that's it's good to see that's not just in our school yeah no that's it from my side so what research did you do so recently I think I'm just going to talk a little bit briefly about the UK government's current plan, or at least an aspect of their plan, to try and address what uh, the Secretary of Education, what he said is a very severe uptick in behaviour issues. Now, when I was reading the uh, news reports, reading from various websites, it seemed to be quite a common issue that uh, National Educational Union and other teachers unions don't actually really agree with his diagnosis that there are that much more behavior issues as a result of lockdown right in fact uh, in quite a lot of schools that maybe didn't have particularly bad issues to start with it's actually better because the pupils are more appreciative that they get to be in school see their friends and you know they don't see school as as much of a uh, bad thing now that they know how boring being you know stuck at home or how difficult it can be to work when you're stuck at home is right um despite that there are measures that are being put in place these things called behavior hubs 
Have you heard about the Behaviour Hubs? I have not. Right, so the Behaviour Hubs is essentially this idea that they're going to put in place, it's almost like a peer training program where people from schools that have a particularly good reputation for behaviour management, I think there's like 22 schools countrywide, uh, people from those places will go to schools that are particularly struggling with behaviour management and trying to put in place a uh, sort of a plan of action to try and address that school's behavior problems, right? This has a few things that kind of worry me, right? So there's one aspect of it, which is that uh, the teachers that are going to the support, the school they're trying to support will be there for one term, right? One term to try and instigate what I think are quite large cultural and policy changes in that school, it doesn't seem like long enough to be there to actually make sure that those changes take and are consistently put throughout the school in the long term. Secondly, I was doing a bit of research into some of the schools. I picked uh, four random schools from the list, trying to sort of uh, make sure there's one from different areas of the country. I noticed that uh, a lot of them are in London, right? which uh, seems a bit London-centric. It doesn't really seem to be addressing the differences in different areas of the country, but let's forget about that for now. Another thing is that these schools that are held as being the standard for behaviour management are either relatively small uh, student bodies, so it doesn't require as much staff to be able to stay on top of it, of uh, behaviour and cultural issues within the school. And a lot of them, they're either at average or dramatically lower than average for either having kids that are pupil premium or disadvantaged backgrounds, pupils that are uh, SEM, so uh, they have special educational needs, and pupils that are English as additional language. Right. So as we already talked about, those are three quite considerable things to consider when schools have particularly uh, severe behavior issues. Right. So it seems quite interesting that the schools that are being sent to uh, the schools that are having behavior issues maybe don't experience the same challenges or the same issues that the schools that have behavior issues would be experiencing. How do you go to a school that has maybe uh, relatively higher, higher above average uh, proportion of SEN and uh, pupil premium, such as my school has, uh, when the person being sent over is from a school that maybe doesn't have those same issues. So what do you think about this plan? Yeah, I mean, the minute you said that, I was trying to think, okay, what context do these so-called trained uh, professionals come from and I'd 100% agree if they had already come from a school which had similar statistics to the schools that require help and that there was a change so they've actually tested it out they've done it and it works but the fact that they're coming from schools where the statistics are very different the whole background and culture is very different to then go to a school which they may not be familiar with don't exactly know how it's run um is quite concerning. I'm just trying to think, like, imagine someone like that trying to come and change the behaviour system or install something into our school. 
there is going to be a huge pushback from the students. I mean, they don't already don't care about um, detentions and things like that. That may be implementing something a lot more stricter. Will that work? I highly doubt it. Because there seems to be a lot more behind the scenes rather than at school. Does that make sense? It's like trying to trying to get to the core of the problem, which is why we have a lot of students working with external professionals, external therapists, child psychologists, which seems that they seem to respond to a lot more than a behavior system that currently exists. Paper that I did some reading is from the Education Endowment Foundation. And they actually have made a few particular documents, things to do with uh, science pedagogy in particular, or like, you know, learning science, cognitive science. So it was quite interesting to see this. And they've also got a website, I believe, if people want to do their own uh, reading through, where it looks at particular aspects of classroom teaching and how well supported it is by research, things like homework and um, class size and settings and things like that. So good reading. Right, this one talks particularly about uh, behavior management. Right, so section one of it, so I only have really uh, done much reading into section one and two. It's a 55-page document. <laughs> <laughs> so knowing your pupils and their influences uh, it gives one example, such as uh, two children are disruptive in a classroom this morning. Pupil one feels he is lacking attention from the teacher and wants this, even if it is negative. Pupil two wants to escape the classroom as she is bored, so acts up to get removed. And the point of this situation is to talk about how teachers need to be trained uh, within the classroom to be able to give, to sort of like assess the situation and make choices that are appropriate to that situation. If pupil one uh, is lacking attention and wants it even if it's negative and you keep them inside the classroom and you essentially tell them off, you reprimand them, you're playing into that, um, you're reinforcing that negative behavior, right? Pupil two, if you leave them inside the classroom, you're not reinforcing their behavior that if they behave badly enough, they'll be kicked out and therefore get what they want. So you need to sort of address these two uh, pupils in different ways so it's good to have a pupil uh, a behavior policy but have trying to train your teachers to be aware of the situation aware of the pupils is arguably quite a bit more important what do you think of that yeah I'm, I'm literally just nodding to everything you're saying literally I'm just that is such a situation that's happened and do you ever get that in your training for behavior where they're just like you know you have to assess the student you assess you know their background try and keep them in the lesson as much as possible which means you're kind of going against the behavior policy you're not using it as rigorously as you should be because it just depends on the student and then you get this backlash from other students being why why are you giving that person more chances than me you know this is the behavior policy why haven't you sent them out why haven't you done this and you just get questioned on your on your decisions and it kind of makes you feel a bit insecure and you're just like what do I do in that sort of, sort of scenario because you don't want to have to explain to students why you're kind of giving someone else a lot more opportunity to correct their behavior comparative to those students that tend to have the behavior right but just aren't doing what they're meant to be doing or what's expected of them 
I always find the situations really, really difficult. It is difficult because you're taught so often that consistency is the uh, biggest, most effective tool for behavior management in your classroom. I saw this quite um, interesting statement of what you need to try and be is consistently inconsistent, where a case of you are making your decisions uh, and explaining your decisions in a way that pupils understand your logic behind it. Uh, I don't want to be parking pupils because they will fall behind within the lessons. And it may even be the case that um, being parked out of the classroom is being sent out of the classroom is what they want. Right. Different pupils will have different needs within my classroom. And so I need to be uh, trying to accommodate that and try to uh, make my decisions based on that. Yeah, I love that. Consistently inconsistent. <laughs> Consistently inconsistent is uh, what I try for. Now, uh, within that same section, uh, some of the recommendations were sort of more of a systemic solution for behavior that can be uh, implemented on a school-wide scale. So not so much just inside the individual classroom. All right, so... One is ensuring that most pupils, especially ones that are challenging, have someone within the school who has an especially strong relationship or understanding of that pupil. And so this is a particularly relevant point for pastoral um, people. So, or teachers that have really strong relationships with some of the pupils, like like you said, you have pupils who get a lot of sanctions, but they're golden for you. You have a good relationship. So you have a unique position to be able to find out essentially uh, what's going on, what are some possible solutions. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that is probably the one of the most important aspects of trying to tackle school-wide behaviour. And it's always the case. You've always got some of these kids who cause issue in your classes, but then you talk to another teacher and you're just like, how do you deal with this sort of particular behavior and they'll just know straight away what strategy works for that child. One thing, um, I don't know if I shared this on the last podcast, probably not, but um, there was a year seven student who's got both ADHD and autism, both very unique to each individual combined. Um, there are certain strategies that you need to learn or you need to get to know that pupil to understand what they want. And this student at the start of the year never used to come to my lessons, walk in, walk straight out, truanting, you got it, would actively get herself parked out of the lessons. And all it took was for me to have one conversation with a teacher that she never used to get detentions from. And I said, what did you do? Like, what did you do? And they said, literally told her I was going to give her a positive phone call home. And that's it. That's all it took. I was like, okay, let me try this out. At lineup, told her, hey, if you're going to be great for me today, I want to call home straight after school today. I'm going to tell them that you did all this work, that you were super focused and that you contributed really well absolute angel ever since that one phone call you have to stick up you have to kind of go through what you're going to say and that's one thing as a teacher you need to do after that it's been what three four months absolutely immaculate generally have no issues with that student and that's what it is it's the little breakthroughs that you get and the consistency that you have to have with those students that seem to help um so 100 agree with everything you've said so far that's a big one. Being true to your word. That's a really big one. If you say that you're going to call home positively, then do it, please. Otherwise, the pupil is not going to take you seriously. And, yep. you know, your credibility mm -hmm. goes down in their eyes. Uh, right. So or if you're like me, someone's chewing gum and they lie to you, 
tell them you're going to give them an hour for lying to you. Yes, yes. It <laughs> needs to be on the uh, negative side as well. If you say, uh, if you don't stop this, you're going to get this, then you need, and they don't stop that, you need to follow through. Um, that's a huge one. Uh, right, so the example that was given for understanding the pupils, knowing what's going on in their lives, uh, they gave a couple of examples. So um, pupil A in year eight has experienced a death of a close relative. Uh, that pupil, who was originally uh, behaving well in lessons and performing well in lessons, they might uh, move down to being subdued but not disruptive. But if not addressed, they can end up being disruptive and uh, unperforming. And being aware of this means that you can essentially give that pupil additional support within the lessons, make sure that you're being, you know, a bit more gentle, you know, consistently inconsistent with them in order to sort of nip that in the bud. So I think a good communication within schools to do with uh, what pupils are going through can be quite helpful. Uh, they gave a framework for building relationships with pupils, which I thought was quite interesting. And I would like to see what your thoughts are. So this model talks about uh, having three aspects to uh, trying to build a relationship. So establish that relationship in the first place, which is defined as intentional practices to cultivate a positive relationship with the student. So building trust, connection and understanding. And it gives you some ideas of how you can go about doing that. So um, reflexive listening so when you're talking to them essentially actually showing that you are interested asking them questions based on what they're telling you uh, validate their thoughts and their feelings um, inquire about their interests so if they have a football team ask them how their football team is doing or if they play a particular sport ask them how they're doing with that maintain so that would be things like uh, interaction with their parents greeting the students when you see them around the school which is a big one I didn't realize how big greeting students uh, around the school or at the door is you have a story to do with that don't you I I learned that more this year actually you know doing that and, and then it gets to a point where the student does that to you and it makes them really happy and it makes you really happy that that they care to say hi it's just the little things like that I mean, my my year 10s last year, which would have been my year 11s this year, do that to me all the time. And I didn't know that that was such a big thing. And then the third part of it is restore. So that's, you know, being intentional in how you address harm to the relationship after a negative interaction. So that's either from how they behave to you or you behave to them, because teachers are people too. And sometimes we make mistakes and it's fine to admit that you made a mistake. Nice. I think actually students, especially at the ages that we teach, appreciate being treated almost like a, an adult, like a young adult, having just those honest conversations, being like, I'm sorry, mm. like I have had a hard day. I kind of would expect you all to kind of follow instructions, especially if it's a class that you have a really good relationship with or some students that have a good, strong bond with to make sure you don't lose that. Um, yeah, no, that was really nice. In terms of restorative, 100% agree. The restorative stuff is true for us I don't know if you do it but in our school if you give a kid an hour detention and it's for an issue that arose from the classroom you are technically meant to have restorative with them to resolve the issue I don't know if many schools do that does yours our school's meant to um it's not held on to as strongly as it should okay the next part um 
was to do with motivation, right? So um, what you were saying about self-regulation and these aspects is a bit, it's quite relevant to that, that whole metacognition, being reflective, thinking about yourself. Uh, one thing that it talked about was extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Do you know what those terms mean? I can take a guess, but I don't know explicitly. Go for it. So, oh, here you go. <laughs> I don't know. Intrinsic motivation, I think that motivation that comes from within, surely, right? And extrinsic is external. So ones that come from either someone else, I'm not sure. Yeah, you've more or less got the the long and short of it. Extrinsic motivation is the motivation that comes from receiving praise or receiving rewards. Whereas intrinsic motivation is the motivation of getting good at something for the sake of being good at that thing. So I suppose it's the difference between uh, doing a job for a, the salary would be an extrinsic motivator. You get money, you get paid, right? Perfectly valid. An intrinsic motivator might be uh, you have a genuine interest in that job and so you uh, want to become excellent at it for the sake of being really good at something similarly to like sports clubs right you can join a sports club because your parents want you to that's extrinsic or you can join and uh, work hard in a sports club because you want to be skilled at that sport right within this um, within the education endowment foundation document talks about extrinsic motivation in the form of external influences is useful for addressing some minor misbehaviors and encourage positive behaviors. Uh, Teachers can use tangible tangible techniques such as rewards and sanctions uh, to improve motivation behavior and learning. However, it is intrinsic motivation which is more long-lasting and crucial to improving the qualities of a pupil within a learning environment, such as resilience, uh, goal-achieving and goal-setting, and is the main determinant for success. And it is those intrinsic motivators that are going to be better or more potent for achieving better behaviour. Yeah, it's it's that uh, internal validation and that um, everything that you've just said. Resilience, a big one. A lot of students I teach lack resilience, even just minor headache. No, I can't learn. That's it. Send me down to reception. And you're just like, as a teacher, you're like, my head's killing me, but I'm still going to be teaching for six hours for the rest of the day. So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, building that resilience 100% is it's such a key factor for intrinsic motivation. Um, and I think I would like to know your thoughts on this, but I think it's this extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, which is why I push back on excessive reliance on reward points in the classroom, as well as sanctions within the classroom. Um, my school, they send an email every week to highlight which teachers gave the most reward points, uh, And I think that's pushing children to be more extrinsically motivated. In some of my classes, I have people who are like, ah, sir, I think you should give me an R2 for having done 
the minimum amount of work just because they put pen to paper. So I try in my classes to encourage pupils to feel happy with how hard they worked, not by their percentage in a test or by having pleased me. So it's, you went through this questioning, you came to the correct answer, you didn't give up. That's good. Yeah. And you know what? It comes back to that. Um, be consistently inconsistent. It works with the reward system as well. I'm not going to give a achievement point to someone who's underlined their date and title. If that's what's expected of them, if that's what they always do, they don't deserve that. I will give it however to someone who stays and manages to stay in my classroom for a whole two hours and does do at least the basics of that lesson. They then would achieve that. And again, you have to judge it per pupil. You still have to recognize and not forget the students that do deserve achievement points or do deserve the rewards and use that as a way to motivate the students around them. We had this thing where you are meant to display uh, whatever level of sanction a student is on on the board to kind of remind them. I do that, but I try and equally balance it out by here's the number of students that have got an achievement point. And just by not having their name on the board for getting an achievement point makes them drive to do something better to achieve it. And that whole idea of extrinsic motivation, I guess, also stems from this idea of external validation and needing external factors to validate you and yourself. It's like the first step that everyone goes through. I mean, look at social media, key example of this. And this generation is now growing up in an area where external validation is such a key factor to their social lives. Um, that within a school environment, if they are not getting validated from home, not getting these forms of motivation or rewards, that within the classroom being there, basically third parents or a set of adults that they look up to, um, provides them with that sense of motivation that eventually when they leave the nest and leave school, that hopefully they've built up some sort of skills to facilitate their intrinsic motivation. It's like having, like Jake, Jake let's say, for example, me and you both did science degrees. We're both good at science, became science teachers. Probably went to a point where we were getting a lot of extrinsic motivation saying, hey, you're really good at science. Here are all your scores. Here's loads of rewards, X, Y, and Z. But then it got to a point at university where it was like, we're still doing this degree because we generally love it and we generally want to be good at it. And it doesn't matter about the external motivation coming from others it was more within ourselves right that's ultimately what's going to drive you to do something that you want to do but we picked up those skills and we picked up that because of the step of extrinsic motivation coming from others I don't know what you think about that but that's how I see it that's a good point and actually I think that I've been a bit unkind to extrinsic motivators within classroom perhaps I think it's a good sort of introductory motivator especially if you've got a new class it's a good way to sort of start up that uh, relationship with the class in general uh, I do remember at the beginning of this year I was quite generous with reward points but once after a while I think the pupils just wanted to start getting that feeling of getting something and that's what I wanted them to feel happy about when it's like oh yeah I've managed to work out how many neutrons are in the nucleus of iron and that that's that's the cool part yeah and I think in fact I would argue that it's almost a good behavior and strategy to go in at the start so what you said was you gave loads of achievement points I did the same I was rinsing it at the start just wanted kids to do what I wanted them to do get a reward for it and then what happens is it becomes a it becomes routine for them and then you forget to give them achievement points and by the time my year nine class yeah Obviously, all of you are impeccable. 
you used to get achievement points to start. Now, barely anyone's name on the board unless they've answered a challenge question, but they don't argue about it because they've kind of fallen into line and knowing that's the expectation. And they've forgotten about the little things for getting a reward point, but more that they're doing this themselves, um, which I think is fine. You don't have to shower kids with so many reward points for little, little things that they do. There is a limit to obviously how much um, you can give and what's acceptable. So, yeah. One thing that I really like to, that I try to make quite central in my um, teaching practice is this idea of a growth mindset. I need to make it a bit more explicit uh, to the pupils. But do you know what a growth mindset uh, is by definition? Kind of, but uh, go on, explain it to me. All right, so the definition of growth mindset is that the is the theory that intelligence is not a fixed characteristic, but it can instead be increased through effort. Um, but yeah, I think that's pretty much all of the stuff that I looked into of particular strategies and techniques. I have one question for you. Go for it. As a teacher, as a person. It is... Do you think you can describe your behavior management style in a single sentence? That is interesting. Oh, I do like that question. It's quite thought provoking. Um, mm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I don't know how I would describe it in one sentence. All I know is treat them like a human being. Treat them like an individual. Explain your expectations. Be fair, but also be fun. I think... I can't be one of those teachers that's so super hardcore, doesn't smile, doesn't have a laugh. Um, I don't think that stuff comes natural to me. I find it quite fake trying to put that on. Um, so I, I guess my behavior strategy, strategy is now, my lessons are going to be fun. You're not going to be my lesson. That is your loss. How about you? Um, I think that for me, it would be things like, so good posture, death stares, respect, and dry humour. <laughs> you know, it's got the... Uh, I love the dry humour. <laughs> it's got to be the dry humour because some teachers can really, really do the being smiley and energetic all the time. Like in my school, there's this uh, a teacher who I'll call Mr. P, who's everything about him is energetic and enthusiastic. Uh, he will be sort of like walking back and forth really excitedly as he explains uh, things within science. And he is very jokey with the class. He's very smiley. I would I would imagine every quality that I would have loved in a science teacher. I'm not that high energy a person, right? So I kind of rely on just being genuine to who I am as a person the dry humour is a very central part of my sense of humour. Um, and then good posture sort of communicates confidence. What is it? Uh, behave as if you expect them to follow your instructions, right? So sort of having that backing yourself. And obviously, you know, a death, a good death stare is revolutionary in a classroom. because you. It's all in the eyes. It's all in the eyes because if you single them out and yell them out, you're giving them a platform. But if you are <laughs> coldly staring at them in the back corner, then they don't get the exposure to the class and they get the message to stop talking. 
Oh, do you know what? Non-verbals. Non-verbals are a charm. If anyone doesn't know that, non-verbals are techniques where you don't talk. You just do these little actions and kids will understand it's towards them. Death stare, number one. Number two, kind of um, tapping the table, walking behind mm-hmm. them, being a little ninja around the classroom. Absolutely great. Yep. My all-time favorite right now, Jake, is uh, kids telling each other off on my behalf. So I'm standing there. <laughs> And I'm just like, you know that look where you're just not impressed? You're just like, why? Why, why do you do what you do? I literally question yeah. it. And, and I question it in a way where it's, it's not very teacher. It's more just, why do you do what you do? You're, you're an intelligent kid, yet you make this decision. Why did you do that? And half the time, they'll just be like, I'm being stupid. And I'm like, well, do you know what? I agree. Because you and I both know you're intelligent, yet you made this choice. And they get it. And the kids around them end up telling each other off because they're like oh no she's not going to do this anymore and you've ruined it for us and it becomes quite um energy saving you could say so uh yeah non-verbals are the number one teaching technique if you are trying yep. to avoid a conflict yeah. another one that's quite handy is what's called assertive positioning in the classroom so if a pupil is being chatty then you position yourself just near them Right. So you stand, so, like you're saying, stand behind them, stand near them. And they are aware that you are there. And naturally, they will sort of like taper off their chattiness with that knowledge. That's why a clicker for your whiteboard is super helpful. It allows you to be anywhere in the classroom and still be carrying on the lesson. Yeah, that's good. Um, but yeah, I think uh, that's a wrap really for us. Hopefully, all of that was really insightful as just an overall conclusion research versus reality i think jake and i both agree with a lot of the research that we found um we do see a lot of those um, circumstances a lot of the students that we talked about um, in our classrooms and we do agree with a lot of techniques that were mentioned um if you are a trainee teacher or another teacher or a member of staff in school that does have the experiences um, definitely check out the education endowment um foundation pdf I think it's super, super interesting. Um, And for those of you that were here to just listen in, thank you for joining us. Hopefully it was really insightful uh, to hear about the kind of things that Jake and I go through um, at school. And definitely there are more episodes to come. As we mentioned in the pilot episodes, we have got more research versus reality uh, episodes that will come along. Behaviour was a suggestion um, from a friend of mine and that's why we've done it today. So if anyone wants to hear about something different, then give us a shout um there will be some guest speakers i guess in a couple more episodes of time while we introduce the burn book have a few more funny episodes share our experiences as well um so if you haven't checked out our pilot episode go check that out again um but we hope you enjoyed it that's it from us thanks everyone cool. thank you bye